Well, we're continuing now our study of 1 Samuel 15, and we're taking a little shift here where we're going to move away from the emphasis on the worship that God rejects, uh, as we as was revealed in 1 Samuel 15 in Saul's um, behavior. And we're moving now towards the, the worship that God accepts. We're taking the positive side of this now and the application thereof. Uh, so let me just begin by saying that the devotion of the Father to the Son is a level of devotion that would be something we could not grasp with our human minds. And it's a mutual devotion, of course, the fa- devotion between the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father. And the fact that the Father sent his Son into the world, he, uh, that the Son became incarnate, or as uh, uh, T.F. Torrance had put it, the humanizing of God in order to redeem humanity, is also way beyond our imagination. I mean, it's a salvation that is beyond our greatest, our wildest imaginations. It's, it's beyond our ability to conceive, even though we are uh, uh, called to grasp the revelation, nonetheless. We are called to not only grasp it, to but to embrace it and to embrace it in its fullness and also to experience it in this present life. Now, but what by that I mean what Christ accomplished in his high priestly work at the cross and by his resurrection and ascension, when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, where now he ever lives to make intercession for those who belong to him. And the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost to make Christ's work effectual, to apply Christ's work to his own people, is the accomplished reality. The accomplished reality of our redemption. And what we experience in our time, although it is yet to be fully realized. So this is the great picture. This is the overall picture of what it means to be a a member of the people of God, the redeemed people of God in Jesus Christ. That we are objects of mercy. We are beneficiaries of Christ's accomplished work. That we, by that same grace, experience in this lifetime, though we are yet waiting for it to be fully realized at Christ's return. So, in order to understand, for some of you that perhaps have not been with us during this series, let me just do a brief review of the text in 1 Samuel 15, uh, the the topic of the worship God rejects first, just so we can maintain our context. First uh, Samuel 15 is a narrative about God through the prophet Samuel commissioning the first king of Israel, Saul, to 
wipe out the Amalekites, a people who were utterly given over to evil, as was manifested by the fact that they were devoted to being an obstacle in every generation to the redemptive purposes of God in Israel. There had been, there were at the time that God commissioned uh, Saul, and they would have continued to be. So there, the time had come. The time had come, and God was going to absolutely and finally deal with the Amalekites because this was a form of spiritual warfare. This was the incarnate evil, if you will, of a whole people given over each successive generation to opposing the redemptive work of God in Israel. The ultimate purpose, of course, was the formation of a nation through which would come the Messiah, the long-awaited seed of Abraham. So God commissions Saul, tells him very clearly, by the way, that he is to go and utterly destroy. the. It was a, actually a term that had reference within worship. The worship was devoted to destruction. That's the term, devoted to destruction, as an act of worship of Yahweh. And so you don't leave hanging anything that God has called you to utterly destroy that stands between he and you. And so, but Saul went out and he began to uh, engage the Amalekites. He destroyed the people. But then, because uh, of his lust for self-honor and because of the, to accommodate the greed of the people, Saul um, actually modified the commission. He redefined the word of God. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. Now, one of the things we learned early in this study is that he almost obeyed it. And one can say he even mostly obeyed it. But he kept the king Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Took him back probably as a trophy. And then the people, uh, the Israelites, preserved all the best of the livestock while they destroyed, utterly destroyed the weak and the diseased and the despicable aspects of the livestock. So what happened there is that Saul and the people took it upon themselves the prerogative to redefine the word of God and then introduce a form of worship because when they brought back the, the best of the livestock, which God had commanded to be utterly destroyed, when they brought back the best of the livestock, they, they, it was under the guise of, well, we brought back the very best of the livestock in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God, they told Samuel. But Samuel wasn't buying it. And, of course, God was not buying it. And Samuel told Saul, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord told me. And what the Lord had told Samuel is that God had rejected Saul as king because he did not obey the voice of the Lord. Instead of being God's agent and carrying out God's 
purpose, the whole purpose in that commission. Saul presumed that he had the right to redefine it, to adopt his own interests within that commission. And then we had that very famous statement in First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty two, and Samuel said, "Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to pay attention than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination." And insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he also rejected you from being king. Almost obedient, in God's eyes, is equivalent to absolute rebellion. God is not interested, nor will he ever bless some kind of pseudo-obedience especially when it's masked by some kind of alternative worship to to that which God prescribes. So this is a narrative about obedience, and it's about worship. And it's about obeying the voice of the Lord and obeying him as he's commanded and not presuming that we have the right somehow to modify that command in order to um, accommodate our own interests, our own tradition, our own ways of worship, to accommodate the world, the culture, lust for honor, lust for goods, material goods. And we saw then that this was indicative of the nature of sin within God's people. This propensity to want to profess to serve Yahweh, to serve the the God of Israel, but on our own terms. And we discovered that that goes all the way back to Adam in the garden when he listened to the voice of his wife, just as Saul listened to the voice of the people instead of the voice of the Lord. And Adam modified the clear word of God to not trespass and did it. And of course that was manifest in the, uh, uh, the violence between Cain and Abel. And then we saw also that it actually uh, was a uh, prominent in Abraham's life, even faithful Abraham. Instead of waiting to follow the promise of God that Sarah would one day bear a son, bear an heir, he and and Sarah decided they could come up with a plan of their own, and that included Hagar. And after Sarah was pregnant, that became a problem, as you recall. So there's this propensity to hear the clear word of God. And this is the principle here this propensity to hear the clear word of God and then to modify it or change it to accommodate our own thinking, our own traditions, our own personal interests, and then claim 
even towards God, that we obey the voice of the Lord. We obey the voice of the Lord when it's obvious that we're not. Now, this sin, of course, that was personified in Saul's actions and in his character, carried forth, we discovered, into the wilderness generation of Israel, where they heard the voice of God and hardened their hearts repeatedly. And then we saw in the New Testament that this was still the apostate religious structure of Jerusalem at the time, as led by the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 7, they had also uh, determined that they could uh, dismiss or set aside the commands of God in order to observe their traditions. Do you see the pattern here? Over and over and over and over again. The word of God is clear. At the time of the first century, during Jesus' ministry, that, that Moses, the law and the prophets were read every Sabbath day in the synagogues and in the temple. It wasn't an unknown word. It wasn't something left to mystery. The word of God was clear in Israel. But still the Pharisees and the scribes took it upon themselves to set aside the word of God and then develop their own traditions and then teach their traditions, as it says in Mark 7, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And then we saw it, and then later in church history, in Galatians, didn't we? In 2 Corinthians 2, in 4, uh, verse 4, uh, and then 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 4, and 2 Corinthians 11. Repeatedly, repeatedly, there were these Jewish Christian traditionalists that followed Paul and the other apostles around and introduced their own version of the gospel, which Paul declares quite clearly in Galatians chapter 1 is another gospel. So the Jewish Christian traditionalists took the gospel, the apostolic gospel, and kept attempting to redefine it in order to fit their Jewish tradition and to demand things of the Gentiles that God did not demand of them under the new covenant. And then we had the apostolic fathers, beginning in the second century and going forward. The Apostolic Fathers who chose to redefine grace. There's a wonderful book by Thomas F. Torrance called The Doctrine of Grace and the Apostolic Fathers. Where he says, quote, Grace by its very nature in the thought of the New Testament must be the absolutely predominant factor in faith, else it is not grace. In the Apostolic Fathers, grace did not have that radical character. The great presupposition of the Christian life for them was not a deed of decisive significance that cut across human life and set it on a wholly new basis grounded upon the self-giving of God. What took absolute precedence was God's call to a new life in obedience to revealed truth. Grace, as far as it was grasped, was subsidiary 
to that. In other words, beginning with the so-called apostolic church fathers, the apostolic fathers, I should say, they redefine grace as being something wholly sufficient to something just necessary for salvation as an enabling force where we actually had, through the use of the sacraments and rites and rituals, uh, the responsibility to save ourselves. And so it moved forward into the uh, from the apostolic fathers into the early centuries of the church, into the dark ages, the formation of the hierarchy. Let me just read to you something that's fascinating here that's really uh, important to our study. The um, church historian E.H. Broadbent refers to a time in which the um, communion was changed from a breaking of bread and drinking of wine among the disciples into a, a miraculously performed, it was claimed, by a priest, transformation. Intensified, it intensified the distinction between the clergy and the laity, he says, and that the growth of a clerical system, instead of the members of the fellowship, caring for one another, serving one another, exercising their spiritual gifts, doing their doing their, their ministry, growing in maturity. Suddenly there was this clerical system where there was an elevated clergy again. The growth of a clerical system under the domination of bishops was substituted a human organization of religious forms for the power and working of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the scriptures in the separate churches. Stick with me now. This is really important because it has such serious application to our day. What we're dealing with here is a principle that we must wake up to. We must be in these last days. We must be awake to this. That redemptive history is defined by God's people choosing a path of pseudo-obedience, alternative worship, a worship that God rejects, and going on as if everything was just fine. So sometime in the second and third century, this, this hierarchy was developed that substituted a human organization and religious forms for the power and working of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the scriptures in separate churches. It's what Jaroslav Pelikan says in his book, The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition, it's what he refers to as the reinstatement of the, let me turn there, the reinstatement, hold, <laughs> hold, hold the side of your chair, the Levitical priesthood. Now this is very important to hold on to because I'm going to get into that in just a minute. He says, um, 
in on page 160 of his book, already in Clement of Rome, this is like the second century, and in the Didache, the attributes of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament were being applied to the ministers of the church. In other words, instead of trusting in the high priestly ministry, the all-sufficient, exclusive, unique, and final high priestly ministry of Jesus once for all sacrifice and his high priestly mediation of a new and better covenant grounded in better promises that actually brought about the perfecting of the saints. A hierarchy was developed of bishops, metropolitans, those are the men above the bishops, below the bishops, priests and deacons in this hierarchy, and they built basilicas, sacramental system, which was nothing but a reinstatement, the reordination, if you will, of the Levitical priesthood, which was an, in practice an utter an absolute rejection of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. So, if it were just Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, if there was just this one incident in redemptive history that we could read about and go, oh, that was horrible, that was terrible, let's learn lessons from that and then move on, it would be marvelous, it would be wonderful. But the sad story is, folks, that throughout redemptive history, that God's people have continuously set aside the clear word of God in order to accommodate their own designs, interests, traditions. And you'll see in just a few minutes the worship God accepts. And in light of that, you'll understand better how and why God utterly rejects anything other than that. There is one, one more example I want to give you, and that is during the Reformation. I, uh, I started out early reading uh, Luther's uh, basic writings. It was very important reading to me, very helpful to me. I, I, I did not understand grace. I did not understand faith. Uh, I had to f discover those things and work it out for myself. I was in a denomination that, that uh, did not teach well. And so I had a lot of, I do, and do today, there are a lot of good things that came out of the Reformation, a lot of very important things. The Reformation, like so many other things, got off to a God-inspired, God-honoring beginning. But then something happened. And that something was the need to accommodate the state church. 
In his book, The Anabaptist Vision, uh, church historian Harold Bender says this, quote, May it not be said that the decision of Luther and Zwingli to surrender the original vision, their original vision was a tragic turning point of the Reformation? Professor Karl Mueller, one of the keenest and fairest interpreters of the Reformation, evidently thinks so, for he says, quote, The aggressive, conquering power which Lutheranism manifested in its first period was lost everywhere. At the moment, at the moment, that's how quickly it can happen, folks, at the moment when the governments took matters in hand and established the Lutheran creed. Over and above, devotion to the clear word of God. That is to say, when Luther's mass church concept was put into practice, the state church, where the people of God were no longer defined by regeneration and the work of the Spirit, but by infant baptism, confirmation, and church attendance, citizens of the state, unregenerate church state. He goes on to say Luther in his later years expressed disappointment at the final outcome of the Reformation. Did you know that? Few people understand that. This good man, this courageous man, this desperate man for his own salvation expressed disappointment at the final outcome of the Reformation, stating that the people had become more and more indifferent toward religion and the moral outlook was more deplorable than ever. His last years were embittered by the consciousness of partial failure or partial success, and his expressions of dejection are well known. I hope you're seeing the pattern here. I want you to see it clearly. I'm begging you to see it because it affects you so much. And there's a good chance, beloved, that you don't even understand that it's affecting you. You're not even conscious of it. You're experiencing it. You're experiencing the effects of it. Likely every time you get up and go to church on Sunday. But you don't understand why things are the way they are. Why is it that in our counseling office, that the two issues that are the most common among the average evangelical Christian today, and I'm talking people who are truly Christians, regenerate people, why is it that they have two things going on typically? One, they're having a real difficult time forming and maintaining healthy relationships. There's relational chaos and pain at work in their life. And they're struggling with addiction in its many forms, including, by the way, religious addiction. Why is that? Why is it that there are so many desperately unhappy Christians? Why is it that there are so many desperately Depressed Christians. 
You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, in his sermon series, um, Spiritual Depression, begins that series asking those same questions. It's a, it's a prevalent problem, prevalent issue. And the reason is, the reason that so many Christians are suffering relationally and from some form or more of addiction, one or more forms of addiction, is because they are living with a pseudo-gospel. They're being preached and taught a pseudo-gospel and an alternative form of worship to that which God prescribes. They're part of a body, part of a tradition, part of an overall ethic that has far more in common with Saul than it does Samuel. Far more in common with the Pharisees than it does Jesus. Far more in common with the apostolic church fathers in their medieval theology of works, righteousness than with the gospel of grace. Well, let's look now at the worship that God accepts. Let's look back to our base text, 1 Samuel 15. And we'll look again at verse 22 and 23. We don't have to look any further than that. First of all, I want to remind you that the word of God to Saul was clear. Saul didn't have to figure it out. Saul didn't have to decode it. It was clear. So he couldn't come back to Samuel and say, gee, I misunderstood. I didn't understand. Or I just have a different interpretation than you, Samuel. Even though he did try that, didn't he? He said at least twice, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And today, he would argue, just because I don't do it the way you do it, Samuel, doesn't mean that I'm not being obedient. See? In our ecumenicalism and in our denominationalism and in all of our desire to be tolerant and coexist and all these other things, we find ourselves excusing disobedience as if we have a right to be disobedient. And that no one has a, a right to challenge our disobedience. I attended a rather liberal seminary for two and a half years. Boy, what a journey that was. <laughs> I stood out like a sore thumb. Me and a half a dozen other students. And they were very clear in their own minds that they had every right to distort and twist and pervert the word of God in order to fit their philosophy. And the more we reasoned with them, the, the more we, that were I and others reasoned with them, the more they dug in. They were beyond reason. They were beyond consideration. And when I would try to defend the gospel in front of them, or even something as basic as the uh, 
bodily resurrection of Christ, students would think that I was just being arrogant. I was being simple-minded. I was being a fundamentalist or whatever other pejorative term they could come up with at the time. Eventually, I left that seminary, of course, and finished my degree work at an evangelical seminary that at least held to the basic doctrines of the faith. But my point is, is that this, this is so prevalent, and people do, today still think they have the right to twist and distort the Word of God and then claim they're being obedient So what we discover here in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? So what do we discover there? He says it in the next verse, next line. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to pay attention than the fat of rams. To heed, to obey and to heed. Better Now, the fat of rams was the choice part of the ram. It was the fatty part of the ram. They regarded fat as being a real luxury, being a real nutritious thing at that time. They were right. But And so he was saying here to heed or to pay attention was better than the voice, the choicest part of the sacrifice. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. So we begin our understanding of the worship that God accepts as understanding that obedience, and please underline that, Write that word down. Obedience is the essential aspect of true worship. An obedience that encompasses the entirety of our life. Not just in our quiet time in the morning or not just when we're at church. But the entirety of our life. Obedience is the essential element in true worship. And to heed or pay attention, that's another important phrase, to pay attention is better than the offering of the choice first or the best of any of your material resources to God. It doesn't do any good to write a big offering check if you're not paying attention to the Word of God. To listen or to hear biblically is to obey. So it does no good to just hear if we don't obey. In fact, that's not even, in a biblical standard, it's not even hearing. Let me give you a few texts to support that. One of the more famous ones we find in James. James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in gentleness receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now listen carefully. But become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who once looked at himself in a mirror, and once he has looked, has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. And so this principle that to hear is to obey, and if we're not living a life of obedience, it's because we have not yet heard the word of God. Now we may be listening, we may hear the words, but we haven't heard the word of God. He says in Revelation chapter 3, the risen Christ says this in verse 3, So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. These are serious times. These are sobering times. But they are also very joyful times. Very invigorating times very spiritually healthy times for those who actually hear and act upon the word of God in obedience. So obedience to the clear word of God and obedience which encompasses the entirety of one's life and to pay attention is to hear. And to obey, I told you in the very first episode, is to see things as God sees them and bring our conduct into accord with that reality. Now, I'm going to spend the balance of our time speaking to you about obedience, because obedience undergirds all authentic worship. So the worship that God accepts is that worship which is grounded in obedience to the clear word of God. I've said it before, let me say it again. Please do not get you let your conscience get too twisted or tormented by this word obedience. What I'm not talking about is some kind of quantitative external piety where obedience is measured by what we eat or what, what we how we dress or how many times you go to church during the week or uh, even how many times you read your Bible during the day or any of the kind of these kind of uh, human rules that get so easily put upon us. Some of you may even be living with some kind of religious trauma where you've had to suffer under that kind of legalistic approach to the gospel. And so keep on listening because I'm, what I'm going to give you now is a definition where you can come to understand the singular obedience that God commands. The singular obedience that God commands in which you, all other obediences, flow. There is a singular obedience the fount of which all other obediences flow. And those obediences be, are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They come flow out of a heart of love for God and sacrificial service to others. That is part of the new covenant. 
for the law is written in our hearts, in our minds, and no longer on tablets of stones. So we're going to discuss this singular obedience now, which serves as the fount out from which all other obedience flows. And to do that, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews in the time that we have left here. We're going to run out of time, so we'll have to do part two of this, but let's finish part one. Now, the book of Hebrews could be redefined as it is finished. The absolute, exclusive, unique, and final word of God in his Son. As our only high priest, the mediator, the mediator of a better covenant grounded in better promises. The high priesthood of Christ whereby his once for all, all sufficient, all adequate sacrifice perfects his people and brings us into the full realization on a positional level of redemption that we can experience in this present life as we await the full realization in the consummation of all things. So the singular obedience that we must get perfectly is to the exclusive, unique, and all-sufficient high priestly ministry of Jesus as a mediator of a better covenant, the mediator of a new covenant consecrated in his own blood, grounded in better promises, and his once and for all sacrifice whereby those who come to him are perfected forever. Now that word perfection is kind of like obedience. It can kind of get us some goosebumps there. But what we're talking about when we say perfection, we're talking about the maturation of our character in Christ. Where we're walking as spiritual adults after the model and image of Jesus. Very important. And anything less than absolute obedience to that high priestly work of Christ in inaugurating with his own blood the new covenant will be regarded as, as God, from God, by God, as utter rebellion. So let's look at that for a few moments. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. 
end quote. That's which you must obey. You must obey perfectly. And when I say perfectly, what I mean is with a, a singular devotion. God does not have many ways, many paths to salvation. There's one path. There's one means. There's one high priest. So as daunting as it may sound to be perfectly obedient, all I'm speaking of there is a singular obedience, a singular devotion to the high priesthood of Christ. My wife recently mentioned to me that she was really grateful that it doesn't say that Jesus is our highest priest or one among many priests, but he is our only high priest and that we rest in his finished, accomplished work. Very important word there in verse 3. Who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. If you are in Christ, your sins are absolutely forgiven. Christ did not come into the world to simply make salvation possible, as some say. With it being left up to you to finish that circle, to complete that work, through the use of sacraments or obediences or rituals, observances, festivals and seasons and Sabbaths and all this other nonsense. No, Christ accomplished your salvation. He is our all-sufficient high priest. So let's go on now to Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So we have this singular word from God where all of God's redemptive purposes are vested in his Son as our only high priest, whose once-for-all sacrifice is perfect and adequate and fully sufficient, fully effectual in our life, realized in us by the work of the Spirit. And yet he tells us for this reason we must pay much closer attention Remember, Saul had the same thing, same language in First Samuel 15. To pay attention is much better than the fat of rams, he was told. For this reason, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard. There you go, there's that principle again. Lest we drift away. The threat, the danger, is that we will drift away, we'll become complacent. For if the word spoken through angels, that's why he brought up angels in Hebrews 1.4, because the, the law was delivered through angels. The law was delivered, spoken from God through angels, given to Moses on Sinai. 
And he says, For if the word spoken through angels is proved unalterable, and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard the apostles. They heard and obeyed. God also testifying with him, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So we have the exclusive, unique, and final word of God in his Son. And we are to commanded to have a singular devotion to him and to him alone. And then we have this command to pay much closer attention lest we drift away. And by the way, in Hebrews chapter 3, we hear this admonition repeatedly, quote, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that is repeated. Again in verse 15, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So we have this singular obedience. And this singular obedience is to the fully vested uh, word of God in his Son. As our only high priest who mediates for us through his perfect sacrifice and through his intercession at the right hand of the Father, even now, he mediates for us all the promises, all the power, all the application of a new and better covenant where the law is written on our hearts and on our minds, where the Spirit is placed within us and is ever working out that which God has worked in us so that we are growing in that perfection that he accomplished for us positionally by his atoning work and resurrection. The Spirit is at work applying the redemption that, purchased, that Christ has purchased on our behalf. And we are in an experiential relationship with that redemption in the present life, in the now, though not yet. That which was accomplished is being experienced in the now and will be fully realized at his return. And all of that is the work of the Spirit. We don't need to go back to the law. We don't need to go back to human priests. We don't need to go back to uh, sacraments. The only saving principle in your life is the finished work of Christ as our only high priest. And you must be singularly obedient to that truth. There's no Jesus and anything. 
The word of God is clear here. And we must never be found guilty of some kind of pseudo-obedience. Where we take the word of God, the final word of God in his son, God's appointed high priest, the mediator of a new and better covenant, whereby his singular sacrifice has made perfect all those who come to draw near to God through him. We must never take that word and then modify it or diminish it or distort it to accommodate our own traditions, our own thinking, our own interests. Do you realize, put your seatbelt on here, do you realize that the two dominant forms of theology and evangelicalism, dispensationalism and covenant theology, both do just that? I know that's a bold statement, and it may rattle some of you, and some of you may just never listen to me again after that. But I hope you stick with me, because I'm not offering you my opinion. I'm, not, I'm giving you the clear word of God. Any system, any theological system, that diminishes or distorts or sets aside the new covenant is a false system. It is a distorted system. It is pseudo-obedience offering you an alternative form of worship, and that is exactly why, with those two dominant theologies within evangelicalism, most Christians are abiding by one or more or the two of those at the same time. They are espousing beliefs that belong to a system and not to the Word of God. But they've been told it is the Word of God. Listen, theological systems are designed by men, formed by men, in order to advance the interests of men. They take the Word of God and twist it and distort it and proof text it and then tell you that it's the authoritative Word of God. But it's not. It's simply not. And any system, let me say it again, that minimizes the exclusive, unique, final, and all-sufficient work of Christ in his high priestly ministry, in which he mediates a new and better covenant, a covenant that he consecrated in his own blood. Any system that seeks to distort that is a false system. It is pseudo-obedience. It is pseudo-worship that God rejects. And you must stay true to the worship that God accepts. And the worship that God accepts is obedience, a singular devotion to his son in his high priestly ministry on your behalf. Hallelujah. That's so powerful. That's so life-transforming. Let me give you just another quick references in, he in Hebrews chapter 8 here. He says in the middle of this letter, quote, Now the main point and what is being said is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
and minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Think of that. The letter to the Hebrews is telling Jew and Gentile alike that we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It's very similar language to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. He's repeating himself because it's that important. The fact that he sat down at the right hand of God says he's a high priest whose work is accomplished. The Levitical high priest could not sit down. There were no chairs in the Holy of Holies. His work was never done. He had to go back year after year, time after time, with blood not of his own, and make sacrifices and atonement for the sins of the people. But Jesus, as our high priest, has made it once for all permanent, all-sufficient sacrifice, and he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister, our only minister, in the holy places, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Listen, there are no tabernacles, there are no temples, there are no holy places, there is no sacred buildings. That's just all an attempt to, again, assert and reestablish the uselessness and the weakness of the Levitical priesthood in replacement and substitution of the priesthood of Christ. Well, we're going to pause there. Our time's up. We're going to pause there. I want to give you time to assimilate some of this. I want to give you time to integrate it into your thinking, to check me on my texts, to search the scriptures for yourselves, to pray about these things. I recognize that some of what I've said today may violate and conflict with many of your traditions. But search the scriptures, beloved. You don't have to agree with me. Search the scriptures for yourself. Read the scriptures for yourself that I've referred here today and others. Be led by the Spirit as you study your text and find that these things are true. And they're more glorious, more wondrous, and more powerful, more life-transforming than you could have ever imagined. So let's put a comma here and we'll pick it up in the worship that God accepts, part two. Amen.